Well, good morning, everyone. And turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. And we're actually going to be reading uh, the last verse of Acts 21. And we're going to be reading almost the whole chapter. We're going to be reading up through uh, verse 29. But uh, I think the, uh, the editor who is in charge of you know, de- uh, determining where the chapters of the Bible go, as we know the words of Scripture are inspired, the chapter locations are not, I think, you know, the legend has it he did a lot of his work while he was riding on a horse, and I think right around this chapter, he got about a verse off, both at the beginning and the end. I mean, who starts a chapter in the middle of a sentence, Uh, right? So, uh, but anyway, we're going to be in Acts chapter 22, and as we remember, as we recall, Paul is now in the custody of the Romans. This is after he had been Uh, In the temple in Jerusalem, Paul, this is the last uh, section of the book of Acts, focusing on Paul's journey to Rome, and this journey kicked off by Paul going to the temple in order to participate in uh, various Jewish ceremonial cleansings, showing his solidarity with his Jewish brethren, and it's while he's at the temple that the entire city goes into an uproar. And we're going to be looking at uh, the Apostle Paul and his response to this. In many ways, when we look at the religions of the world, we can see a lot of very zealous people, people who are zealous for what they believe in. And, uh, and we, in many ways, they believe very strongly in the traditions that they have received from those around them, uh, from their religious leaders, who else it is. Uh, whoever else it may be. But something that we are also aware of is that these traditions, in many ways, can have a blinding power that prevents people from seeing the truth. Here, in this section in the book of Acts, the truth is going to be given to the Jewish people, the truth about their God, who he is, what he has done, and what he is doing in the world. But because of the blinding power of tradition and religious zeal that is not in according to the truth, they reject it. And we see this pattern throughout the world. Martin Luther, for example, was branded as a heretic, Now, why was he branded as a heretic? Because he had come up with some brand new teaching that was completely foreign to what had come before? No, he was branded as a heretic because he believed and taught what the Bible teaches about how one is made right before God through faith alone. And he was branded as a heretic because this teaching went against the traditions of the church in his day. If you ever have the chance to share the gospel with a cult member or something along those lines, and I uh, just yesterday, actually, I had a couple Mormons stop by my house. They <laughs> probably had no clue what they were getting into as soon as <laughs> I said, yeah, come on in, let's go have a seat. Um, but uh, if you ever do have the chance to sit down with uh, members of the cult, especially when the Lord brings them to your door, that's, it's always nice when that happens, you may be disheartened when you open the Word of God with them and you begin to share biblical truths with them, things that are just so plain and obvious from the Scriptures, and, these, and it seems to just bounce right off of them. Uh, it has no effect on them. 
and it is because of the traditions that they hold, these teachings that they hold that are blinding them. And Paul experienced very, something very similar to this when he was amongst his own brethren, when he had the opportunity to share the truth with his Jewish brothers and sisters. And that's what we read here in this section. So Acts chapter uh, well, 21, the very last verse of that, and we'll read most of Acts chapter 22. So verse 40, And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when, the, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Men, brothers and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even quieter. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but having been brought up in this city, having been instructed at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictness of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering both men and women into prisons." as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brothers and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me beheld the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What should I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been determined for you to do. But since I could not see because of the glory of that light, being led by the hand by those who are with me, I came into Damascus. Now a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And at that very hour, I regained my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your witness about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and guarding the garments of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they were listening to him up to this moment. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. 
And as they were crying out and throwing off their garments and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by flogging so that he might find out the reason by why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with leather straps, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported to him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, I have been born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately withdrew from him. And the commander also was afraid when he learned that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have to read your word, to read of the answer that Paul gave to those who came asking of the hope that he had within him. I pray that we would look to the boldness of the Apostle Paul, willing to share the truth of the gospel, even to those who so strongly reject it. I pray that you bless this time that we have this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul now is in the hands of the Romans at the barracks. We remember he was carried up, he had to be carried up the stairs because of the swarm of the Jewish people who were seeking to put him to death. And now we, we talked last time about just how strange this man was, beaten, bloodied, bruised, who now says to the Roman soldiers leading him to safety, hey, I want to talk to them, right? Because Paul, if there's an opportunity to share the gospel, he takes it, no matter what. And that's what we see here. He's given permission to speak to the people. Uh, And Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. So Paul begins to address the people, and he does so even in their language. Uh, It says the Hebrew language it's not necessarily Hebrew, the language of Hebrew, but the language that the Hebrews spoke, which at that point in time was Aramaic. That was the lingua franca, uh, to use that fancy term, of the people of Israel in those days. And uh, this drew the attention of the people, the fact that he's speaking to them in their own language. Perhaps, being with such a big crowd, there were probably many in that crowd who didn't know who Paul was at that point, Maybe they, like the Romans before him, were mistaking him for that Egyptian. Remember, the Romans came quick because they thought uh, that Egyptian who had caused a a, a ruckus in the past had come back. So Paul, speaking to them in their own language, uh, showed that he was one of them. Uh, Paul is a Jew. He's part of them. Uh, and he's speaking to them not in Greek, but of the Palestinian Jews. So he's not just one of those Jews from far off, uh, but he's a Jew of Israel. Uh, He's part of the club, so to speak. And he asks that he would give a a defense, the word here, apologia, a reasoned defense for the hope that he has within him, a a reasoned defense for what he believes and preaches. Because the Apostle Paul doesn't just want to leave them in their sin and rebellion. He wants them to know the truth. Uh, So he's more than happy to share the truth with them here at this point. And we can break this message down 
uh, into three different parts. Um, it, it's, there's no rule anywhere that sermons or messages have to be in three parts, but it's always nice when we see sermons and messages in three parts because it helps us organize it in our mind. Uh, part one of Paul's apologetic, his, his uh, reasoned defense, is basically him saying, I was once where you are. That's the first part of his message. I was once where you are. I once believed what you believe. I once had the attitude towards people like me that you have today. The second part is Paul talking about how he was called by God. What changed? Well, uh, what changed was that Paul encountered the Lord. And then the third part of his message is why he was called to be a witness to the nations. So in this first part, Paul hopes to establish some solidarity with the people there and to show them that, hey, uh, I once believed just as you are, but my mind was changed. And you need to know why my mind was changed. So he addresses the people And he says, uh, men, brothers and fathers, hear my defense. And this is very similar to what Stephen had said. Stephen, similarly, way back in Acts chapter 7, had called the Jewish people brothers and fathers, showing that, hey, I'm not different from you. I'm not out of line with what Judaism teaches. I'm not out of line with what the Bible teaches. Uh, So Stephen's defense began that same way, brothers and fathers, fathers perhaps even suggesting that there were some Jewish leaders in the crowd at that point in time. And now Paul begins to lay out his Jewish credentials, which are nothing to slouch at, right? Paul wasn't just the -the run-of-the-mill Jew living as a farmer somewhere who went to synagogue once a week and that was about it. Paul had some very strong Jewish credentials, which he begins to lay down for the people, Oftentimes, uh, converts from various religions like to try to lay down some kind of uh, some kind of background in their old uh, background for their old religion in order to boost up the testimony that they're giving now. Uh, there's a lot of uh, sometimes I'll listen to uh, Muslims who have converted from Christianity to Islam, and they will often say things along the lines of, "Oh yeah, I was a a Bible teacher, and I did this, I did that," hoping to boost up their credentials to show that, and this is wrong because of this. Oftentimes, if you look a little deeper into their credentials and you hear what they believe, they show that you had no clue what you believed when you claimed to be a Christian. But the Apostle Paul is doing something similar, showing that, hey, I know what you believe. I came from you, and here is my background. I'm a Jew, born of Tarsus of Cilicia, but having been brought up in this city, having been instructed at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictness of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. So Paul, though he wasn't born in Jerusalem, he was brought up in Jerusalem. He was brought up in the Jewish religion. He was brought up, he was born a Jew, yes, uh, but he was brought up in Jerusalem under the teaching of Gamaliel. Now this was a man that we'd met previously in the book of Acts. He was a Pharisee, a, uh, a very popular and well-known religious leader in that day. We can find other writings referencing Gamaliel. In fact, one writing from that point in time says that Gamaliel, one of the, the names that they called him was the beauty of the law. 
So he was just this fantastic Jewish teacher of the law. Think, let, let's think of how impressive my credentials would be if I said, hey, I was brought up under the teaching of Billy Graham. I sat at his feet. Billy Graham instructed me in my ways. You'd immediately sit up and say, oh, wow, this guy must know what he's talking about. Uh, that's not always the case, but that's, uh, that's kind of what's probably going through the minds of the people in the Jewish audience. Okay, he sat under the one who we call the beauty of the law. He knows what he's talking about. He sat under Gamaliel, educated strictly according to the law of his fathers. As Galatians chapter 1 verse 14 says, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So Paul, we can say, graduated high school at 16 and had his bachelor's degree by 18. Uh, so he's advancing far beyond his peers in Judaism and in his instruction in his teaching. And he, he says, I was just as zealous for the law as you are, uh, a zeal for God that we see the Apostle Paul had, that these Jewish people had. But the problem is there's a great amount of zeal but it's not necessarily uh, in line, in accordance with true knowledge. One of the things that the Apostle Paul says about the Jews, for example, in Romans 10 verse 2, is that I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Right? So they're very sincere in their faith. But one of the realities about sincerity is you can be sincere, but sincerely wrong at the same time. Right? The uh, two uh, Mormons who came by the other day, they were very sincere in what they believed. The problem is they were sincerely wrong because what they believed was not in accordance with what God has revealed in Scripture, but in accordance with traditions that have come along later. So very zealous for these things, but it leads them to the wrong conclusion. And it's the very same way with these Jewish people. So Paul emphasizes their zeal that he had, and he said, I was just as zealous as you are. And in fact, if you want to compare credentials, I was even more zealous than you. And he goes to show that. You want to know how zealous I was for the faith? Well, I persecuted the way. In Jerusalem, one of the big problems that in the minds of the Jewish people was this new sect of people following this claimed this uh, Jesus, the Nazarene. They were called the Way, right? And we've talked about that. Jesus says, "I am the Way, the Truth, and the Life," and that's the name that the Jewish people took, or that the Jewish Christians took for themselves. Hey, we're followers of the Way. But this way was considered to be a deviation from the truth in the minds of the Jewish leaders. And it was a deviation of the truth in the Apostle Paul's mind as well. And he said, you want to know how zealous I was for the religion that was handed down to me? I persecuted the way, even to the point of the death. I persecuted this way to the point of to the death, binding and putting men and women into prisons, as also the high priests and all the council elders can testify. So, he, again, he's here appealing to their knowledge of him. 
Because there's probably people in that crowd who knew Paul before he was uh, on the road that he is on now. And they're probably wondering, what exactly happened to him? Uh, Isn't he the one that we gave permission to go and arrest these people and to bring them back? What is going on now? But we see that Paul had such a great zeal that he was willing to commit horrible acts against Christians, persecuting the way to the death. We see the first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen. The Apostle Paul was right there associated with his death. It was at his feet that the ones who stoned Stephen to death laid their cloaks, maybe even indicating that Paul was the one who was in charge of that whole event. Acts chapter 17, we read that they had driven Stephen out of the city. They began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And later we read that this Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And when we later find Saul on the road to Damascus, this is what it has to say about him. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And later on, he says that as he was doing so, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against him. Now, imagine that. We can see a lot of that zeal in the world today where uh, you want your enemies basically dead, right? That is just how ingrained this is in the Apostle Paul. And we see that zeal unbound with truth is very destructive. Not only destructive for the person who has that, but destructive for those around him. And we, like I said, we see it in the world today. We can think of the obvious examples. We can think of radical Islam, and not all of Islam uh, goes around killing people and things like that. But that radical part of Islam uh, who are responsible for so many terrorist attacks, we can see the tremendous zeal in the religion of secularism, secularism being the rejection of God. Uh, It's actually a religion And if you want to see them get zealous, call them religious, right? Atheism is a religion as well. And people are incredibly zealous for their atheist faith. Think of the LGBTQIA++, et cetera, et cetera movement, right? Uh, Very zealous for what they believe. Zealous to the point where they think people like you and me should be thrown in jail if we don't use their preferred pronouns. So we can see this great amount of zeal that is in the world, but zeal that is not in accordance to the truth. And we see how destructive it is, and we see in the Apostle Paul just how bad it can get, taking people, in fact, to the point where he says, nah, Jerusalem isn't even enough. I need to go all the way to Damascus because I'm hearing word that there are followers of the way there, and I need to bring them back so that they can uh, receive what is due to them. So that is Paul's unbound zeal for the truth, and not unlike the crowd there, because what did that crowd want? Well, they wanted the exact same thing that Paul had wanted before he was a Christian. They wanted his blood, didn't they? They were seeking to put him to death. So Paul, in this section, is saying, hey, I was just like you. And we move on to the next section. What changed? 
right? What, what happened that uh, caused Paul to change his mind? We continue reading in verse 6. But it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, that a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me beheld the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So what happened? Did uh, Paul, as he was sitting and contemplating uh, maybe what he had heard from Stephen and the other people who he had brought to prison, did he say, huh, I don't know, maybe there is something to what they're saying. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, maybe I can begin to give them some leeway. That's not what happened. Paul was knocked off his horse. There was a tremendous blinding light uh, that came when he was on the road to Damascus and it struck him to the ground. The conversion experience that the Apostle Paul had was not a, a simple change of mind reflecting the claims of Christianity, right? He didn't say, hey, you know what? I thought about my upbringing and I decided that it was wrong and I'm going to join the Christians now. No, Paul, when he was on the road to Damascus, had no intention of becoming a Christian. He had no intention of following Christ. Uh, his intention was to take them and put them to death. Uh, and again, not all conversions are necessarily this flashy or exciting, but we see Paul's conversion was not a result of him just simply contemplating and deciding everything he grew up with was wrong. Paul's conversion was due to a direct encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And Paul is sure to let the audience know that what happened here was not just a vision. This light that came and blinded me, those who were with me, they saw that too. The voice that I heard, those who were with me, yeah, they didn't understand the words, but they could hear it. They knew that something crazy, something supernatural had taken place. You can even ask them. You can find the ones who were on the road with me. Ask them what happened on the road to Damascus. This isn't something that just happened in my mind. This isn't just a delusion, right? I didn't just drink some, uh, some bad water that day and wake up a Christian, no, I'm a Christian because the Christ of Christianity came and knocked me off my horse and spoke to me. The Christ who I have been persecuting is alive and he talked to me. Jesus, the Nazarene, the one whom you put to death, has actually risen again from the dead and he has come and called me. So Paul is knocked off his horse by the risen Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And I think it's interesting that uh, something, you know, we think of the many titles that we give Jesus, Jesus the Lord, Jesus Christ, but Jesus the Nazarene really centralizes the fact that this Jesus is not someone who is so foreign from us and someone who is uh, just, just kind of out there, right? This Jesus the Nazarene is someone who lived among us, someone who lived, you know, just a couple miles north more than a couple miles north, but someone who lived in Nazareth, part of Israel at that time. We know his family. We know where he grew up. His brothers and sisters, they're among us too. We know them. This Jesus of Nazareth isn't just some made-up deity that we came up with when we decided that Judaism wasn't enough for us. This Jesus of Nazareth is someone who actually lived, someone who you know about, 
Because remember, Jesus uh, at that time was well known by all who were in Jerusalem. He had done many things that were unquestionably from God. And it's for these things that they put him to death, right? They look at the work that only the Spirit of God can do. They attribute it to Satan and they say, this man must be a blasphemer because he is going against our traditions. And once again, what is it that blinds them to the truth? Not the scriptures, but their own traditions that don't come from scriptures, but come from the deviations of men. So this Jesus of Nazareth they put to death is the very same Jesus of Nazareth who rose from the dead, who met with the Apostle Paul on the road. And Paul knew when he encountered the Lord, he says, what shall I do? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that has been appointed for you to do. And Paul had to be led by the hand to get to Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing near to me, and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And Ananias' description is interesting. Remember, something the Apostle Paul is trying to do is show that, hey, what I believe is not a deviation from what the scriptures teach. What I believe, what we as Christians believe, is not a deviation from the Old Testament religion. It's a deviation from your unbiblical traditions, but it's not a deviation from what we find in the Old Testament. Because we see here that Ananias, he's a man who follows the law. He's a man who is well known among the Jews for his, uh, his piety in these things. And it is Ananias that the Lord instructed to come and, help res- and, to come and restore my sight. So Ananias is described as a devout and well sp- uh, as devout and well spoken of by the Jews. Christ, Christianity is in complete harmony with Judaism, right? As far as uh, in that day, right? Because what is it? It's only a continuation. It's the revelation of the God of Israel through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that old covenant brought to completion in what Jesus has done. So Ananias is highly regarded as a Jew. Uh, it, it is him who acts on God's behalf and is used to restore Paul's sight. And that's what we see. Paul was blinded by the light, and upon encountering Ananias, his sight came back. And this restoration of the blind, once again, is only something that God can do. Isaiah 35 says this, Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. So Paul, blinded, and now he can see. Who is the one who could do that? Well, only the God of Israel. And what's Paul showing by this? I'm only doing this in accordance to what our God has commanded me to do. I'm only here because of what our God has revealed to me in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've seen that this is, can only be a work of our God by his supernatural work in causing me who was blind to see. So the Apostle Paul is called by the Lord Jesus. And the Apostle Paul is commissioned to be a witness to the Lord Jesus. We continue reading 
For you, uh, Ananias, and his instructions to Paul, for you uh, and the Lord and the instructions that he gave to Paul through Ananias, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Paul is commissioned to be a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is made fit for service through the work that God has done through Christ, bringing about regeneration and receiving the forgiveness of sins, identifying with the death of Christ through baptism. How is it that someone is made fit to be a follower of Christ? How is it that someone is made fit in order to do the work that God has set apart for them? Now, does God simply look into the world and say, well, uh, I need someone who's able to accomplish this task for me. I better pick them out. Uh, if, if I can get a good candidate, then uh, I'll use him to do that work. No, that's not the case. Were you, let me, let me ask this and honestly reflect on this. Were you a good candidate to be a Christian? Look at your life before Christ. Would you look at that life and say, ah, yes, there is a person who God would select to be one of his witnesses in the world. Yes, there is a person who God is going to use to glorify himself and show his son to the world too. Absolutely not. Was the Apostle Paul a good candidate to be a Christian? Was the Apostle Paul a good candidate to be a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the apostles? Once again, we can only say no. This was a man who hated the Lord Jesus, who hated those who followed him completely unworthy. How is it that he is made fit for service? Not because he himself was already fit, but because of what Christ has done. Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. And it's not this physical act necessarily that uh, forgives Paul, that act of baptism, but Paul receiving baptism indicates his repentant heart and faith in Christ. And this is how God always operates, bestowing unmerited grace on those who do not deserve it, right? Paul didn't deserve this. We don't deserve it. Paul was not called to be an apostle because he was already fit for the job or because he had a strong moral character or because God thought that he might be a good fit. In many ways, Paul himself says that he was completely unworthy. He's the last person on earth who should have been picked for this job of the apostle. To the Corinthians, he says this, I'm the least of the apostles, not even fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul, just like all who have faith in Christ, was called as a sinner out of a sinful world and molded to be God's instrument to bring his truth forth. In many ways, it can be easy for us to think that we, who are called apart, are not fit for the job. And in a sense, we're right, we're not fit for the job, right? We're not worthy, we're not able, and there's every reason in the world for God to simply leave us in our own destruction. What's stopping God from looking at you right now and saying, man, uh, I, I, I must have picked out the rotten apple when I was sorting through to find who I wanted to do my work. Well, nothing in us 
right? There's nothing in us that makes us fit for this work that God has called us apart for. It is only through the work of God in, uh, in uh, crafting us to who he wants us to be. Just as the Apostle Paul says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So, Paul, in the same way, called, though unworthy, formed by God to be a witness to the Gentiles. And this is the reason that he is called, to be a witness to the Gentiles, showing that God's salvation plan, God's operation is not just for Israel, it's not just for that secluded place and that secluded people, but his plan is for the whole world. God is the God of the world, is he not? And yet we see the Apostle Paul, uh, as he is uh, in the temple, we see that because of this testimony, he's forced to flee. We keep reading. Uh, let's get to the verse we need to be at. Uh, verse 17, we continue reading what happened after this. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, get out, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your witness about me. Now, there's a lot that took place between Paul's conversion and him going to Jerusalem. We know from other uh, sections of Scripture uh, that one thing they did begin to do immediately was proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. You know, probably within days after he was, his uh, sight was restored, he goes around to the synagogues beginning to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. And it was because of this testimony that he was only able to stay in Damascus for about three years. And he was forced to flee because the Jews there sought to kill him. As he tells us, it is after this, in Galatians, it is after that he flees that he goes to Jerusalem. And we read about this earlier on in the book of Acts. He goes to Jerusalem, and this is where he meets with Barnabas. Because when he showed up in Jerusalem, people recognized him, they knew who he was, and they were afraid of him. But that's when Barnabas comes along and he gives him the hand of fellowship. And he also meets with some of the apostles as well. And he tells them about this experience that he had. However, just like in Damascus, the Jews here in Jerusalem sought to put him to death. In Acts chapter 9, verses 29 through 30, we read that he, one thing that he did when he was in Jerusalem was talk and argue with the Hellenistic Jews. But they were attempting to put him to death. And when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And we see that Paul re even received a revelation of this very fact. Paul goes to the temple and he is praying. And remember, in the minds of, remember one of the big reasons that Paul is here is that Paul was charged with defiling the temple. It was in the temple that they arrested him. The charge was that he's defiling it by bringing a Gentile. He's showing no respect for our God. He's showing no respect for the temple. But in those days, at least for the Jewish Christians, the temple, in many ways, was still the central location of worship. We saw uh, after the ascension of Jesus, the Christians, the Jewish Christians, would continue going to the temple. It was in the it was on the way into the temple at the hour of prayer that. Uh, Peter and John met with the paralytic man. So Paul, of course, because his God has not changed, his God is still the God of Israel, goes to the temple to worship. And as he's in the temple, he has an experience, an experience maybe even similar to what Isaiah experienced when he was in the temple, where he saw the Lord and he was commissioned for his work. And now Paul is in the temple. 
and the Lord appears to him, and he is directed, uh, and he is told to get out of Jerusalem because the Jewish people will not accept his witness about them. And the Apostle Paul says, uh, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison you and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by and approving and guarding the garments of those who were slaying him. So I think what Paul is saying here is, hey, God, if not, you know, here in Jerusalem, they know me. What better place could there be for your witness than the one who was once their enemy going and proclaiming that Jesus is the Lord? But God had other plans in mind for him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. God's plan, ultimately, even for the Jewish people, was not so that his truth would only be in one place at one time among one people. God, even with Israel, had the purpose for them to be a light to the nations, that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. When the pe- but even before the people of Israel went into the land, one of the things that God said to them was to keep my commandments, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God whenever we call upon him? So Israel was supposed to be this shining city on the hill where the rest of the world would look and say, man, what kind of a nation is this whose God is so close to them? And through that, they would be drawn near to God. Even the temple, in some ways, was supposed to have this purpose. Solomon, in his prayer of dedication of the temple, says this, Concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And when he comes and he prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls out to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name, to fear you, to do it. As, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. So this should be one of the aspirational things for the people of Israel, the nation swarming to Israel, swarming to the God of Israel. And that is what God is doing through the gospel, sending it out among the nations. But how is it that the people of Israel respond when they hear what God had instructed for Paul to do? Go and I will send you away to the Gentiles. Well, we read in verse 22 that they were listening up to this point, up to this statement. But then after this, they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Once again, we see the blindness that tradition causes, this blindness that is caused by the hatred for those whom God uh, intends to save, this blindness that the Jewish people have, the, the very mention of God reaching out to the Gentiles, they are outraged that someone would say such a thing. In many ways, this was the attitude of Jonah. You remember when God said, hey, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh and tell them that judgment is coming. And Jonah's response was, nah, I'd rather just let him die. I'll go the opposite direction. 
And then Jonah was upset. He goes into the city for three days, a city that takes several days to walk across, so he didn't spend a tremendous amount of time there, and he didn't reach a tremendous number of people. And what did he do? He said, I'm going to pitch my camp right over here, and I'm going to sit and wait and watch as God destroys them. That's the hatred that he had in his heart. Now, I think Jonah had repented after that, but that was the attitude that so many of Israel had. Uh, The attitude was, how is it that God can save people who are so wicked and so unworthy, right? Uh, What kind of a God is that to take these filthy, pagan, these, these wicked, horrible people who have done wicked and horrible things and draw them near to himself? It was outrageous in their minds. And because of this, they begin to cry out for the death of Paul, throwing cloaks, uh, throwing their cloaks and dust into the air, maybe showing that, hey, uh, we'd love nothing more than for this man to be stoned to death. They, of course, couldn't do it because Paul was in the custody of the Romans, but such a sign would really show their attitude towards him. So uh, we continue reading, as they were crying out and throwing off their garments and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks stating that he should be examined by flogging so that he might find out the reason that they're shouting against him in this way. And remember, imagine you're a Roman soldier standing there. We have a man speaking in a language that you don't understand, and all of a sudden, the crowd goes into an uproar. It's like, all right, what did he do now? We've had enough riots for today. We better figure out what this is all about. So they haul Paul back into the barracks, and they stretch him out, and they're getting ready to, uh, to whip him, to, to torture him, to ask him uh, uh, why it is that this is happening. But they stretched him out with thongs, and Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion went, heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. So Paul, uh, yes, just as much as he was a Jew, he also was a Roman citizen. In that time, Roman citizens had a great deal more protection than just the average person living in the Roman provinces. For one, it would have been illegal for a Roman to be beaten. And the ones responsible would have faced a very harsh punishment, perhaps even death. That is why earlier on in the book of Acts, after Paul was arrested and beaten, uh, the magistrates who were responsible for that were afraid Because if word got out that they had beaten a Roman citizen, they might even be put to death. And at this point in time, Paul is then released. And this is quite the change of pattern from what we typically see when the people of God are brought under that custody. But anyway, we're pretty much out of time. So in conclusion, I think something that we see here is that when the truth of Scripture is rejected, it is often on the basis of an underlying tradition or a view of God that does not come from the scriptures. Why is it that the Jewish people rejected the testimony of God? Not because it, wasn't, not because it was out of line with the scriptures, but because it was out of line with their own tradition, with their own view of God that they had made up that is not according to what the scriptures say. And we likewise have to be careful 
not to confuse our own fallible opinions with the unchanging truth of God's revelation. Because we can be very opinionated about all kinds of things, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it can become a problem when it becomes a blinder to what the truth of God has to say. We must always be ready to change our minds in accordance with the Scriptures. And something else we need to be aware of, when we present the truth of Scripture, it's important to stress that it's not a mere opinion of man, but what God himself has revealed. One of the sad things about my discussion with the Mormons yesterday is they said, well, you can believe what you want to believe and we can believe what we want to believe and that's okay. But the sad part about it is if God has revealed a way, one way, the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's not. As I said, you can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. What we know must be found in what the scriptures have to say. And all of the traditions that we hear must be tested against them. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing. Our Father, we're thankful for this time that we've had to read your word, to see the courageous testimony of Paul, uh, to see your work that is done in Paul, a work that is also done in us, whom you have brought out from the world. I pray that you would give us the courage to be your witnesses in this world, a world that is filled with falsehood and lies and distortions of the truth, and that we would be prepared to go to what you have said in the scriptures, to speak that truth with a great deal of confidence, knowing that it is not just the mere opinion of man, but the very revelation of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.